With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. He is the author of Can't Not the Hustle, Inside the Season of Protest, Pandemic, and Progress with the Brooklyn Nets Superstars of Tomorrow. Um, it is out June 22nd, so by the time you're watching and listening to this, the book will already be out. We welcome Matt Sullivan onto Crusology. How's it going, Matt? Going great, guys. Appreciate you having me on. Appreciate you coming on the show. It is very timely. Um, as we were discussing off air, unfortunately, the Brooklyn Nets were eliminated from the playoffs. So I'll just ask you, Kenneth, and it's an easy question. What are your thoughts overall on the Nets season? I mean, it's just been such a roller coaster, such the expectations of them pretty much winning the NBA title and for them just to be um, eliminated in game seven in that fashion. What are your overall thoughts? Well, I think the Nets lost because they were built around superstars and those superstars got hurt. I mean, eventually they'll win because of that, too. But the first two seasons of this so-called super team, I think, reveal a lot about, you know, what we know as player empowerment and the dynamics of that, which, you know, celebrities taking control of billion dollar enterprises, basically, with all of the accompanying dramas and egos that make the NBA so fun to watch. It says a lot about every team, really, and that the real player empowerment, you know, goes beyond injuries, beyond the game into the KDs and Kyries of the world being really influential. So, you know, it's about power. It's about fame, not necessarily wins and losses to me, or even Kevin Durant's, you know, toe-stepping on the three-point line at the buzzer there. For sure. Um, can you kind of take us into the the psyche of Kevin Durant? I saw your tweet, and it's in your book, just regarding when Kevin Durant was in Golden State, just about what Steve Kerr had to say about him, just the strain on his face every day. Um, and you just mentioned, especially that third year, just the, the amount of pressure he was feeling. And I'm just thinking this year, just with James Harden being hurt, just with Kyrie Irving um, being hurt as well, do you think he's feeling just the same amount of pressure? And do you think, you know, despite the, the title chances of this team, is this going to be a point where just Kevin Durant gets, gets frustrated and wants to find another team? Or do you think he's in it in Brooklyn just to stick it out um, and will enjoy playing with Harden and Kyrie? And this year is just kind of an aberration in terms of just their injuries. I think he only gets frustrated these days when teammates, coaches, executives don't really have a championship mentality. I think he got a lot of that out of the Warriors. I just think he got sick of it. Um, you know, there's a scene in my book where Steve Kerr takes KD out for a drink. And it's in Oakland, uh, and they had a big fight coming up against you know a lot of KD's former teammates, including James Harden at the time. Um, this is when the Warriors should have been rolling, but KD was kind of in himself again, right? He's looking at his phone all the time, and that's what that's what Steve said. He said he was just looking at that damn phone all the time. But uh, you know, Steve tried to to bring it out of him. He said, you know, the thing about LeBron and all the great ones, what they did is they just said. Effort, you know, um, not gonna not gonna give in to the noise, and I think Steve at least told me that Kevin had a lot of trouble with that, and so what he was trying to do in coming to Brooklyn was to take control of the situation, but also, as Steve Kerr kind of says in the secret motto of the Nets this year, protect the group, right? And I think that's what the Nets as a franchise offered KD it had less to do with 
you know, fancy performance groups fixing his Achilles tendon or great practice facilities or arenas. He can get that anywhere. This is about him having the space to be him and be that pure hooper that he really wants to be deep down. Matt, I wanted to ask KD and Kyrie both, I, I think it's fair to say, have had an adversarial relationship with the media at times. I, I just wanted to get your perspective on what was it like to be there day to day? What was their general psyche like and, and their general demeanor uh, with you around preparing this book? I found KD to be pretty chill. I mean, maybe it's because he could do the media on his own terms. You know, I went over to his place pretty late. Everybody's smoking weed, hanging out. He was having a good time and just staring at his phone, looking at videos of himself getting healthier by the day in the gym. Kyrie, I would argue, has a case to despise the media. He has been villainized for being a complex, sometimes inarticulate or unclear person. Our interactions were pretty heady. You know, I would ask these kind of long off the court questions and he'd be like, well, that's a deep dive, man. So here we go. And when we, when, when he gave some of his most thoughtful answers last season, whether it was on Kobe or quote unquote mood swings, you know, those, those were the interactions that I maybe encouraged him to, to put out there. I know he wants to have those conversations. He, he puts on this almost different voice when he's doing the kind of X's and O's or through the game I think he's just kind of sick of doing that. He's, you know, he's a young guy. He's a veteran in terms of the NBA, but he's a young guy in terms of finding himself. And I think the last year, maybe starting with COVID slash Breonna Taylor and all this stuff that really got him going from being a good, great humanitarian to a true activist has turned a corner for him. And he said that. And, you know, we had very heady DMs on Instagram where we'd be sending each other links about you know, liberal news and indigenous news. And then one day he'd send me a, a 67 page Supreme court decision about indigenous land rights and said, keep the truth alive. So I think he appreciates journalists who appreciate him. What do you think, you know, I, I certainly don't want you to put words in their mouths or, or anything like that, but what, what do you think the role is of the media today in modern sports? Like, I, I kind of see things both ways. I, I can definitely understand how Kyrie would feel um, kind of vilified or, or villainized by the media and how he would um, be apprehensive to, to interact with them. But I also think, you know, the media... Like, like your book, for example, it does give us a deeper, more enriching connection with these players. How do you think we, we kind of find the balance? I, I don't think you can keep players happy all the time because at, at times criticism comes. But is, is there a way that maybe we've been able to find a better balance with this over the past year? I certainly don't think the media are pawns, as he quite frustratedly posted early in the season when he seemed to think he could go beyond the NBA rules and regulations of talking to the media by sending out his own press releases. I think Kai sees, sees himself as a creator, a writer, a director, an artist. He's a pretty good artist. He's a pretty good writer. But there are rules, and he doesn't like them. He doesn't like a lot of rules in general. And I think that's okay. I just think the last decade, and my book gets into this in, in some detail, kind of, 
cross-cutting between the crazy historic season we just experienced and the last 10 years of player empowerment, media, social media. Kyrie got sick of Twitter. He quit that. He ghosted on Instagram for a while. Now he's posting these very political regrams and kind of manifestos. He goes in and out of trying to take control of his own media property. I think he's getting there. He's taking some cues from KD, who, while KD loves tweeting tweeting and clapping back at random dudes, including you know some people I talk to <laughs> who are like, it's changed my life, but I don't really care as much as he does. Um, and that's how deep I got. I, I'm not sure I ever ended up understanding a clear path to what Kyrie wants in terms of media control or relationships other than to show that there is more of him than this hooper that entertainment is not for the purposes of making you know the nba money in disney world it's it's a job and he is a real person when he goes home from his day job does he find any enjoyment in the game of basketball anymore it just seems like it's just watching him some of the um, post-game press conferences. He just seems strained. It just I, I felt, that's telling um, my co-host, I felt sorry for him because it just seemed like he's doing something that he doesn't enjoy doing. So just in the future, in future seasons, do you see him just being you know, a player that plays 20 seasons or do you see him perhaps just abruptly retiring in, in the next few years just because of his other interests outside the, outside the basketball court? I talked to friends and colleagues who were concerned that after Kobe passed, he would just straight up retire. I don't think Kyrie's really predictable. I, I, he's talked about you know going off into the mountains someday and when he retires and just never coming back. He has heady visions. We all, we all know that. I, I think he's happy on the court. He's incredible on the court. It is his happy place when he's got 20,000 of his own fans on his own terms, on his own turf behind him. You know, there was that whole thing with Jackie McMullen's article um, early early the season before this past one. We were saying that he had these mood swings. And he came out and said it. You know, sometimes people have mood swings. That's that's part of life. He's been open about mental health, which, you know, Kevin Love and Steph and LeBron have kind of almost monetized mental health into part of their brand. Kyrie's just being pretty real by putting himself out there. You know, he said when his grandfather died in in – early in the 2018-2019 season, you know, a couple of weeks after he promised all the Boston fans he was going to sign long-term, he said to KD and to anyone who would listen, you know, that made me not care about basketball as much, made me realize there's more to life. And I think that was really the beginning of his journey to where he is now as a complete person. And I'm not saying he completely rejects his day job. He's really good at it and he really likes it. It's just become a lot. And that's a lot for the Nets to absorb going forward. I'm curious how much they can put up with it. You know, management is having a tough time with it. I think KD and, and James and, you know, the teammates just will go along with it because that's what you get when you get a fantastic player is also pretty much a head case. Uh, Matt, I want to shift gears and I want to talk about um, in your book, you, you focus a lot of the athletes, um, I guess their journey in dealing with this um, social activism and just dealing with everything that happened in the United States politically. And my question is moving forward from the bubble and everything getting back to normal. That seemed like a 
kind of a snapshot of time. Everything kind of aligned perfectly for the players of the NBA to make their voices heard and to take a stand. Um, and I always make this comparison with Matt um, just regarding the WNBA and how they are always standing up for social injustice, no matter what, no matter what the circumstances are. I guess my question to you is, do you see um, – I guess the players within the league in the future um, continuing to take hard stances um, with social justice issues and not just when it's just kind of at the apex as it was during the bubble. That's a great question. And it's very complex for uh, an obviously predominantly black league and black men who have been through pain and cycles of injustice who are fed up and want to do something about it as did a lot of the world last year. But when the cameras go away, are you just kind of stuck with the next tweet, the next hashtag, the next, you know, check, oversized photo op check? I think these are questions that the NBA hasn't had a lot of time to grapple with this season. You know, there was a big rush to restart the season so the NBA could make a lot of money. There was a lot of COVID stuff, you know, remaining. We were not out of that. And guys didn't have a lot of time to even do their, you know, Nike requirements. I think the NBA Social Justice Coalition that's just getting started is is doing some interesting mainstream work in Washington. I think what you got to see is individual players really going their own way, doing things behind the scenes. You look at someone like Kyrie he basically tried to form his own coalition to boycott the bubble. Whether by the time the bucks went on strike, a lot of people were saying, well, Kyrie was right all along, you know, and that's what a lot of what the strike was, was, was the same emotions and, and fed up priorities that Kyrie was expressing a few months earlier. And now Kyrie's doing the work behind the scenes, right? He's got um, a very progressive Manhattan DA candidate who's, who's up for primary election on Tuesday you know, sitting courtside as his guest after the Bucks game, he looked more excited to see her than Steve Nash, right? And and so he's supporting causes like that. He's he's not just you know subverting press conferences in um, after post game talk about supporting Palestine. He's trying to figure out how to fund camps in Israel and Palestine for kids in the middle of that conflict. So some guys just don't do it for the clout, but they're doing it. The NBA, I think, as a league as these various coalitions and press releases and everything, I think has a lot to figure out about that balance between are you doing it for the clout or are you doing it for the action? And I think there's a lot of promises that have yet to be fulfilled, but we'll see if they go, you know, the safe LeBron way or the the interesting, uh, perhaps more liberal Kyrie way, even for an allegedly progressive league. Do you kind of follow up to that? Do you think there was a little bit of a... Uh, maybe stepping off the gas pedal is is the way to put it with some of the causes that they were doing, not only because of the rush nature of the season that you mentioned, but maybe as a reaction to like ratings in the bubble, things things along those lines from maybe the front office side of, of the league. No, I, I think the stepping off the gas um, does not have to do with ratings, which I think have been proven to not have anything to do with social justice. There's actually a poll that said um, a majority of Americans supported kneeling for the anthem right after the, the bubble concluded. So I think there there was a big breakthrough there. There just hasn't been it's 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 been a weird kind of stasis for humanity, and and I'm not sure there have been moments to break through. And I don't think 
we should underestimate what LeBron, uh, who you may say is mainstream, takes the safe approach, is inconsistent in what he's quote-unquote educated about. I mean, LeBron basically put his foot down. At the end of that buck strike, he got on the phone with Obama, Chris Paul, Iggy, Mello, Russ Westbrook, and they said, okay, we're going to get the owners to pony up a lot more money, and we're going to get them to turn arenas into polling places. Guys, I spent the whole last season at Barclays going to a ton of games, and then the world froze. The first time I went back in a long time was on election day. It was really inspiring. It was quiet. You know, the court was dark and not much light was on or music or noise, but it was a real polling place. And I think the, the NBA sparked something like nearly 300,000 people voted or, or, you know, did re- election related activities at a sports arena last year. And I think that bled into the, the Georgia runoffs, um, which were big for LeBron and more than a vote. And he really held down the fort while the NBA got its act together on, on doing work behind the scenes, not just um, out at the polling places. Um, shifting gears to more on the court, um, I heard this through this various sports shows that the Nets being eliminated was actually good for the NBA because you have a lot of just fresher stars and just um, kind of a new blood infused into the playoff picture. But at the same time, the NBA runs on stars. I mean, the Nets are the probably most popular team headed into this season. So what's kind of your feeling on this team overall from a kind of a perspective from the fans. I, I think if it was kind of a normal season, I kind of got a little bit of Miami heat vibes from like the 2010s, but not quite. Um, did Kyrie and Durant feel that way of them being villains in terms of kind of just the casual fans eyes, or that doesn't really matter to them in terms of their perception from the fans or media. Oh, I think they care. Yeah. You know, Steve Nash had a great moment. I think it was pregame one day. It's like, we're being portrayed as the villains, right? So he gets it. They get it. I, I don't think they are the heels of the NBA. I think they're cultivating a fan base. You know, uh, playoff games I was at were lit. I mean, they were really, really, the place was going crazy like you used to see um, in other championship eras. So I, I think they're more interested in dynasty building than um, fan base building. I mean, the Nets ostensibly have the most diverse fan base in the NBA. Joe Sy is going to spend a lot of money to make sure that more stars come. I think you're going to see a lot more, not a lot more, but more of the Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge kind of moves where, you know, vets sign on the minimum deal. And, and that's the LeBron model. Kyrie knows it. Kevin and James are, you know, probably going to the Olympics to do right by their country and make some Nike money, but they're going to be on the big recruiting trip there. And I, I think the Nets are hurting after, you know, KD's, as he said, big foot got stuck on that line. And they know they were that close. They know next year's not going to be easy. If you got, I don't know, Kyle Lowry going to the Lakers, uh, it, it's going to be a major gargantuan superstar showdown coming. And I don't think they're going to settle. And I also don't think KD and Kyrie, as, as much as they stare at their phones and, you know, get fed up with what people are saying about them. They know how to build a champion. They have seen it. And they, as they refer to it, you know, getting back to that feeling on the mountaintop, I think they know the playbook now. And I think they're in control of the franchise more than Sean Marks is. Are, are the Nets the, you, you bring up, um, you know, super teams and like the Miami Heat, LeBron James model. Are the Nets kind of the logical conclusion, like an extension of that Heat super team um, in that they're getting, 
even more control than than like LeBron had of that Miami organization, which maybe ruled with more of an iron fist, like your your classic Pat Riley organization, you know, where he he certainly had a lot of clout and, and power in that organization. Um, do do they see themselves in, as an extension of that or something in, entirely different? Because I know, you know, it's not like LeBron is that much older than KD, especially and, and Kyrie. I mean, these guys are peers as well. I think that's a great point. I think the Nets are something of a bookend to a decade of player empowerment. You could argue that player empowerment changed in terms of what these guys meant off the court, but the playbook that that LeBron set with the decision is pretty on point. Eric Spolster was telling me that you know when he, when he that, that when Miami played Harden, Russ, and um, and James back in the day. He sat in the locker room after the finals with with LeBron and, and Chris and Dwayne and said, "You know, thank God we got them now. These, these little pups, right?" And, and I think you know, Spo told me that he was excited. He thought OKC and Miami could be like the Celtics and Lakers of of the 2010s. Obviously, that broke apart, and and here we are now with some of those guys, you know, a little aged, but playing the same kind of player empowerment deal, obviously, but. When you think about it, like, what is a super team? You know, there, there are windows of possibility. It takes, you know, ego, drama, money, timing. And I think that's kind of it. A super team is, is what you make of it, whether it's one guy, two guys, three guys. The Nets might have five Hall of Famers on their team next year. It's really about how you deal with all that. I think Steve Nash is a, is a really interesting fit for this in that, you know, Kenny Atkinson had a lot of those tough back and forths that Spo had, frankly, when he started. Remember that famous viral video back in the day of, of LeBron kind of bumping Spo on oh, the yeah. sidelines? I think right. a lot of that was playing out. A lot of that was playing out behind the scenes with Kenny Atkinson, who was kind of always on edge about you know what he whether he was being judged by Katie and Kyrie, whether he was spending enough time with them. You know, he wanted to go on a private plane to fly with Kyrie when he was getting second, third, fourth opinions on his shoulder surgery because he didn't really trust the Nets to make the right decision for him. And so I think Nash, you know, I worked a little with him at Bleacher Report. He knows how to lean back rather than lean forward. He knows how to deal with huge personalities. I think he did a really good job of that this year. I just didn't think he saw enough of him. I, I wanted to ask, um, you know, kind of uh, continuing this idea of player empowerment based on your time around the nets and and also just all these interviews that you conducted and everything is, um, is there a logical conclusion to this player empowerment movement or, or is there like kind of a, a stated goal maybe that you've found? Is, is that something like the players having a greater um, percentage of the CBA? Is that, um, you know, more player owners? Is it all of the above? Um, what, what have you kind of seen and, and heard uh, based on your experience? Part of it has to do with perception. I think when you had LeBron taking the power with the decision in 2010, um, Dr. J actually described it to me as, you know, there, there's service to yourself and service to the game. And, and I think we agreed that LeBron back in the day was self-serving. It was a selfish decision to go win a championship and do things his way. And people judged him for it. He was a, he was a heel then. Now it's almost normalized. And, you know, when I was spending some time in the for really the end of my book as as James Harden was 
playing kind of secret pickup games around election day with um, with KD, with Kyrie, with Chris Paul and James on Kobe's old gym, you know, really crazy stuff. But I mean, if you look at James Harden, he, he was in total control. I mean, he just got to basically, he didn't, I don't think he wanted to put up, you know, a fit or disappear to strip clubs or whatever until he got what he wanted, but he did. And I think to some extent that's a logical, you know, somewhat of a bookend. I mean, I guess literally in my case, to what LeBron started, that it's normalized. It's like, of course he's in control. You know, maybe, I'm sure Daryl Morey regrets not throwing Ben Simmons in that deal now, but but James got what he wanted, and that's that's the end of the player empowerment, judgment, negativity that we knew of it. Now it's just kind of the way it is. So you don't see any negative backlash if, let's say, you know, we've heard about Luca, he's unhappy in Dallas. Heard about Zion, he's unhappy in New Orleans. Basically, can we basically assume that players that you know are number one picks, the, the, the days of them playing for that team that drafts them number one or in the top five, that's over. We, we automatically assume they're going to go somewhere else. They're going to chase that ring, and unless they're getting, unless the circumstances align perfectly, they're just going to bounce just due to them going to ring chase basically, or just be happier in another market. I, I think, I think they've a lot of top, top, top. A-list players have realized that it's their job. They can go to the best available employer. That's what KD did unabashedly. It's what lots of people told him to do. It's what KD has gone on to tell guys like Gordon Hayward to do, right? Like, you don't know anybody anything is what he told Gordon. You know, then Gordon goes to Charlotte for the money, which is fine. But I think the game has changed. The way that fans perceive this sport is similar to soccer right? You follow personalities and they're bouncing around all the time and you've got your favorite player. And I think it, I'm not sure it's become a teamless, you know, wandering fan base kind of thing because fans are fans and teams are teams and places are places, but the NBA is good. The NBA is fun because of the stars and because it's a 24, seven, 365 storyline where we're talking about Luca leaving one and we kind of shouldn't. And I think it helps the ratings. It helps the money, but it also helps allegiances to people. And I think that's what we've started to realize about athletes because of the NBA is that we care about these people and their talent and their personas and not just the uniform and their job and their owner and their salary. We care about where they're going and, and how that inspires us. Well, Matt, uh, appreciate you coming on to the show. Thank you very much for your time. Um, please let our listeners and viewers know where they can find you on social media. And then please, again, plug the book where um, they can find it and then any other projects you're working on this year as well. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Duggery, which is a terrible pun that I'm stuck with for the rest of my life. It's S-U-L-L-D-U-D-E-R-Y. <laughs> Um, the best way to find the book is um, at hc.com slash the hustle. That's for Harper Collins, my publisher. And it's on sale everywhere. Uh, support your independent booksellers. Um, it'll be out there Tuesday and going forward. It's not just for Nets fans. It's not just for NBA fans. It's for people who care about sports, social justice, power, fame, and fun. Well, Matt, awesome. uh, thank you very much for coming on to the show. We really enjoyed the chat. Appreciate it. Appreciate you guys. Thank you, Matt.